Father, we know that all good things come from you. And we know that if we're ever to have an ear to hear, an ear to understand what's being said, to pay close attention, to comprehend it, and then to live in accordance with it, to be changed by it, we know that that has to come from you. And so we ask you this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that we would hear and respond rightly to the letter that you wrote to the church at Sardis. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to be attentive and focused during this time, that you would make your word clear to us, bring us understanding, and rightly convict us of the things that we need to be convicted of, encourage us in the ways we need to be encouraged, and by your grace, conform us more to your image during this time. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to worship you well, to value you through the listening of your word. We pray that for anybody here today that doesn't truly know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And that, Father, for all of those who do know you, that you would cause us to become more like you today. If there are any, Father, in here who are not serious, who are nearly lifeless spiritually, even if they're saved, we pray that you would help us to wake up today, to get serious today. Do that, Father, for your glory, for your namesake here. Do that out of your love for us. And do that for the sake of all of those that we will impact by living a faithful life of service to you. We pray, Father, that you would do all these things by your spirit. You you would help me preach this well, preach it clearly. And you would help us to listen well and to be rightly impacted by it. It's in your name we ask all of these things, Jesus. Amen. All right, good morning. If you're not already in Revelation 3, you can go ahead and uh, and turn there now. Hopefully you were following along as you uh, heard it read a second ago. All that glitters is not gold. That's the title and theme of the sermon today. Perhaps you've heard that saying before, all that glitters is not gold. Uh, Someone thought that I was referencing a Smash Mouth song. The saying goes back further than that. Someone else uh, mentioned that a similar phrase is used in one of Tolkien's poems or songs that he wrote for Lord of the Rings. I won't mention who brought that up, although you could probably guess. Uh, It's one of my brothers, not Joshua. Uh, I won't say his name. But the saying goes back even further than Tolkien. In fact, in the form that we have it today, it it goes back, uh, it's derived from a line in one of Shakespeare's plays, in a play called The Merchant of Venice. And in the play, there's an unmarried woman named Portia. And she's much to be desired. Um, But unfortunately, Portia cannot marry whoever she wants. Uh, Because of her father's will, her suitors have to pick from one of three boxes, one of three chests. And whoever picks the chest that has Portia's picture inside gets to marry Portia. One chest is made of lead, one chest is made of silver, and another chest is made of gold. And one of her suitors, uh, the Prince of Morocco, in the uh, second act of the play, reasons that surely Portia's picture wouldn't be put in a lesser chest of lead or silver, and he ends up picking the chest of gold. Uh, But when he opens the chest, much to his disappointment, instead of finding Portia's picture inside, the one that he wants to marry, he finds a skull instead. And within the skull's eye, there's a scroll with a message on it. And part of the message reads, I'm swapping a couple words, part of the message reads, all that glitters is not gold. Often you have heard that told. Golden tombs do worms enfold. So he picks the chest with gold on the outside, but instead of finding the one he wants to marry on the inside, he finds death. All that glitters is not gold. The church in Sardis was a glittering chest. Jesus said in verse 2, You have the reputation of being alive. They were glittering of life. They had a reputation of spiritual vitality. Verse 2, you have the reputation of being alive, but, Jesus says, but what? You are dead. You are dead. Inside the gold chest was not what the prince of heaven desired to find, but death. Inside the golden chest was a skull. All that glitters is not gold. That's a message we need to hear today. 
This was a, an urgent message to the church of Sardis in John's time, and I think it remains an urgent message for us today. Each and every one of us, without exception, must open up the chest of our own church and open up the chest of our own hearts. What do people think of our church? Do our activities sparkle of life to those on the outside? What do people think of you? Do you have a reputation that glitters of spiritual vitality? We have to ask ourselves, look inside. What's there? Do people look at you? Do people look at your life and say, wow, he or she's a Christian. They know the Lord. They've been born again. We need to be careful. All that glitters is not gold. This letter will definitely be an occasion for us to examine ourselves today. And that's what I want us to do. Let's go to Sardis together and let's look first at the church's problem. They were having a near-death experience. They looked spiritually alive, but they were nearly lifeless. And then secondly, let's see what Jesus tells the church to do about it. He gives them a wake-up call. And if you're like the Christians in Sardis at all, it's a call that should feel like a big bucket of cold water being dumped on you this morning. So point number one, a near-death experience. And point number two, a wake-up call. Let's look first at their problem. Point number one, a near-death experience. Jesus said, verse one, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is letter number five of seven letters that Jesus had written to each of the seven churches of Asia Minor, all of which would be located today in modern-day Turkey. And if you looked at these churches on a map, you would see that as we move from one letter to the next, we're working around the churches in a kind of of U-shaped curve. We started with Ephesus and then went to Smyrna and then Pergamum, the northernmost city, and then Thyatira coming back around and now coming to Sardis, moving further south, and then we'll move southeast into Philadelphia and Laodicea. There was a time in history when Sardis was a very powerful city, but by the time Revelation was written, the city wasn't quite what it used to be. It was still a significant city, but its greatest glory days lay in the past. Sardis was a trade center. It was positioned on a highway, and as one source put it, Sardis, quote, was noted for its luxury and loose living. Wool production and dyeing was one of the city's industries, which may make Jesus' use of garment imagery particularly relevant to the church there in Sardis. And there may have also been a sizable and well-to-do Jewish population in the city. Geographically, Sardis uh, was situated in a way that made it challenging to attack. Part of the city sat above uh, nearly 1,500-foot inclines or, or, uh, or walls on three of its sides. But despite its uh, seemingly unattackable position, Sardis was taken by surprise twice before, once by Cyrus in 549 B.C. and again by Antiochus in 214 B.C. False pagan gods were worshipped in the city, including Sibylle, Cori, Demeter, and Artemis, along with the emperor. And the church in Sardis was no doubt tempted to accommodate to the sinful lifestyle and idolatrous practices of the culture around them. In fact, perhaps their failure to resist that temptation was one of the reasons why it seems like the church in Sardis faced relatively little persecution. In verse 1, Jesus said, quote, To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven spirits symbolize the Holy Spirit, perhaps with seven conveying the Spirit's fullness or perfection. Jesus said, I know your works. We've heard him say that before. He said that to other churches. I know your works. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, this is Revelation 2, verse 2, he said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He commends them. In the letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus said, Revelation 2.19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus commends them. In the letter to the church in Sardis, he says, 
I know your works. And then we're waiting for that word of praise, but we don't get one, at least, at least not yet. Instead, Jesus says, verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus rebukes them rather than commends them. Uh, this letter is a hard letter. Only two of the seven letters open up with a rebuke. The letter to Sardis is one of them. Jesus later says that not everyone in Sardis has soiled their garments. There are some who had remained faithful to him. But he kicks off the body of his message with rebuke instead of praise. And the rebuke is a rebuke that no church ever, ever wants to hear from Jesus. What did he say? Verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Your reputation is false. You seem alive on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Inside that glittering chest of yours is a skull. The text doesn't say what gave them a reputation that glittered of life. Perhaps they were faithful to sound doctrine and spent time precisely formulating their theological beliefs. Maybe they carefully refuted false teachers and were known for rejecting all manners of heresy. Maybe they loved to talk about theology and the scriptures. Perhaps if you were to join one of their gatherings, you would see their conversations filled with interesting and edifying topics. Perhaps people were faithfully gathering on the Lord's Day. They were all there on time. They were all dutifully engaged in the worship service. They all gave their offerings like they were supposed to. They all participated in the fellowship meal afterwards. They all gathered on schedule for their prayer meetings and fulfilled their obligations to the poor. Who knows, maybe they were actively engaged in evangelism in Sardis. And maybe when they looked at themselves, or maybe when other Christians or other churches looked at the church in Sardis, what they saw appeared to glitter of life. This church was saying or doing some right things. Sardis may not have been the best church ever. It doesn't mean that their reputation was necessarily uh, exemplary. You know, there may have been, may have been uh, some issues that were more widely known, but they at least had a reputation among some people that they weren't dead, that they were at least alive spiritually. There was something about the church in Sardis that glittered of life, but all that glitters is not gold. If you saw many of those things in a church today, what would you think about that church? Probably would glitter of life to us too, right? If we saw a church that was interested in theology, that was faithfully gathering, that was faithfully serving, maybe you'd think, wow, that church is alive. The Holy Spirit's working in that place. I think there's other things that might give us that impression today too. Things that, that sparkle of life to us in our, our 21st century circles. We might say, well, they subscribe to the nine marks of a healthy church. Or even better, they're on the founder's church search list. That means they must be good. They're five-point Calvinists. They're a Reformed Southern Baptist church. They hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Wow. They're so wise. They're so discerning. They condemn critical race theory. They condemn homosexuality. They condemn abortion. They condemn all the condemnable things. And look at their liturgy. Look Look at how they sing older hymns. Look at their expository preaching. Their pastors write books. Their pastors do podcasts. They speak at conferences. All their members are plugged into discipleship groups. Yeah, maybe it's not a perfect church, but it's got to be alive, right? Maybe. Maybe not. Don't get me wrong. Many of those things aren't necessarily bad gauges of how healthy a church is. But it's important to realize that they're not always accurate we have to be very careful how much confidence you vest in all that stuff looks can be deceiving all that glitters is not gold 
And the same is true on an individual level, right? Just because you read and pray every day or share the gospel or serve or go to Planned Parenthood or listen to podcasts doesn't mean you're alive. All that glitters is not gold. Jesus said to the church in Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Yes, that means it's very, very, very possible to look alive and not be. It's possible for churches, it's possible for Christians, but Jesus knows what's inside our glittering chests. He knows what we really are. Even though the lifelessness of Sardis was not obvious to everyone, perhaps not even obvious to themselves, it was as plain as day to our all-knowing king. He said, verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works, but there's something wrong with them. There's something gravely wrong with them. What was it? Well, verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Look at that again. Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works may glitter of life in the eyes of man, but not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, your works are inadequate. And God's eyes are the only eyes that matter, right? I mean, really, what does it matter if your friends or your family sees you as alive when God sees you as dead? What does it matter if other churches look at Christ Community Church, hustling and bustling with all of our activity, and in their eyes we're alive, when in God's eyes we're nearly lifeless? Right? God is who we want to please. And God's opinion matters most for now and for eternity. As Christians, we perform for an audience of one. Our church performs for an audience of one. The church at Sardis was performing decently for others, but Jesus said, verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They failed to please the only audience that really mattered. And when it says, I have not found your works complete, the word found might be used in a, in a judicial sense. Perhaps like someone being found innocent or guilty in a court of law. In other words, before God's perfect bar of judgment, their works had been found incomplete. That was the verdict. Your works are wanting. One scholar said, quote, in God's sight, i.e. from God's point of view, their works had not measured up. Another scholar said this, quote, this may be a tactful way of saying that their performance of the gospel, their Christian way of life, leaves a lot to be desired. They fell short of God's standard. In what way exactly did their works not measure up? Well, interestingly, the problem doesn't seem to be that they were actually spiritually dead, as in not saved. Notice in verse 2, Jesus said, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. In the past, perhaps the church was more pleasing to God. And even though their spiritual vitality had declined, some good or some life still remained. But that was about to die too. They're not dead yet, but they're close. In light of that, when Jesus calls them dead in verse 1, it's probably hyperbolic. The church was having a near-death experience. A near-death experience. Despite all the ways that they glittered of life, they were nearly lifeless. And they might be, perhaps, on the precipice of losing it all, which would be catastrophic for them. It would reveal that they really were still dead in their sins and awaiting eternal death. So if they probably, if the problem wasn't that they were unsaved, in what sense were they nearly lifeless? Jesus said in verse 2, Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. How did their works not measure up? Uh, well, perhaps it had to do with the heart behind their obedience. Maybe they were going through the motions, doing all the right things, 
but it was for the wrong reasons. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't because they loved him. It wasn't because they desired his honor and his glory. They were motivated by something else. Ask yourself right now, is that you? I think we talked about this with the letter to Ephesus. Is your obedience to God driven by love or by something else? What does God think your motive is? If you're motivated by the wrong things, then you lack spiritual vitality, despite the reputation you might have with others. Perhaps verse 4 hints at another possibility for why their works fell short. In verse 4, we learn that Jesus' rebuke, thankfully, doesn't apply to everyone in Sardis. He said, verse 4, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. Some, it says, had not soiled their garments. That's a metaphor that may have been especially relevant given the wool and dyeing industry in Sardis. By not soiling their garments, Jesus may have meant that these Christians had abstained from sin. They hadn't dirtied themselves with sin. Or it might mean even more specifically that they hadn't capitulated to the cultural temptations in Sardis. Maybe they hadn't accommodated their conduct to the loose living of their neighbors. Maybe they remained faithful to worshiping Jesus alone instead of participating in the idolatry of their city, even though doing so could have resulted in economic hardship or persecution for them. So when Jesus says in verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God, maybe their works had failed to measure up because their lives were soiled by sin. So take a second again to ask yourself right now, is that you? Is that you? Are your garments dirtied? How dirty are they? True spiritual life means seriousness about sin. It means cutting off your hands and gouging out your eyes, as Jesus said, to guard yourself from sin. It means disciplining yourself not to watch ungodly things, not to listen to ungodly things, not to think ungodly things or say ungodly things or desire ungodly things. It means discipline fueled by love for Jesus. That spiritual life, not soiling your garments through sin. True spiritual life means not accommodating to the sinful lifestyle of this place. Here in Silicon Valley, that might look like refusing to be emotionally or physically intimate with somebody before you're married, even though that's what all your colleagues do. Or refusing to pers- or, or refusing to tolerate other people's sinful choices at the expense of their well-being, even though that's what all your family members and friends do. Or perhaps it might look like refusing to pursue your own personal hopes and dreams if they're not what's best for your family or your church, even though self-fulfillment is prized so highly today. Not soiling your garments through cultural capitulation. That's spiritual life. True spiritual life means smashing the idols of your heart. It means doing away with your excessive desire for pleasure or approval or success or rest. It means fighting to worship God and God alone with all of who you are, not soiling your garments through idolatry. That's spiritual life. If you lack these things, then you lack spiritual vitality. And if you detect very little of this in your life, then it's fair to say that like the church in Sardis, you are nearly lifeless. You are nearly dead. Having a near-death experience, just like they were. doesn't matter how many activities you engage in, that glitter of life, all that glitters is not gold. Inside that glittering chest of yours is a skull. We all need to ask ourselves how well we're pleasing our audience of one. Our Our works, do our works measure up to his standard? If your motivations for obedience are wrong, or if your garments are soiled by sin, the answer might be no. Be careful not to deceive yourself. The church at Sardis, they had a reputation, a reputation of being alive. Perhaps even the Christians in Sardis thought of that themselves. They thought of themselves as alive. 
But it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what other people think. What matters is what God thinks. Does he see you as spiritually alive? Does he think you're obeying him in love? And does he find your garments clean? Or does he see you as nearly lifeless? Even though the church in Sardis glittered, they were not true gold. They were having a near-death experience. And if that's you, if you feel like you're right there with the Christians in Sardis, what should you do? What does Jesus tell the church in Sardis to do? He tells them to get serious. He calls them to wake up. And maybe this morning, maybe he's calling you through this passage to wake up today too. If you look past your glittering outside and you find lifelessness within, then listen closely to this second point. Point number two, a wake-up call. Jesus said in verse two, you can look at it again with me. He said in verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Jesus gives five commands in two verses. Five commands in two verses. He says, one, wake up. Two, strengthen what remains. Three, remember what you heard. Four, keep it. And five, repent. First he says, wake up. That can mean, quote, be spiritually alert. Not just be alert now, but be alert and continue being alert going forward. If they've let themselves decline to the point of near lifelessness, they have not been spiritually alert, obviously. Jesus calls them to wake up and to stay awake. And then second, he calls them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. The good things they still had. The life they still had. He says, renew it. Restore it. Reinvigorate it. Increase it. Do you have love for God? Then fan it into flame. Do you fear God? Then put more wood on that fire. Do you have faith? Then fortify it. Build it up. Are you serving? And check your motives. Replace the wrong motives with right ones. And then serve more. Strengthen the life you have. In verse 3, Jesus gives the third command. He says, remember then what you received and heard. What did they receive and heard? And perhaps it's the teaching of the apostles, the apostolic teaching. That may have included minimally the gospel, calling them to remember that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Remember that you are saved by God's grace through faith in King Jesus. What they, re- what they received and heard may be more than just the gospel. It may have been, as the scholar I mentioned earlier put it, the Christian way of life, the teachings about how to live as followers of Jesus. Jesus says, remember, call to mind the things you were taught. But of course, you're not just supposed to remember it. Command number four, keep it. Keep it. That means observe it, obey it, do it. Don't just remember it and think about it. Remember it and do it. Live it out. Both of these commands, by the way, remembering and obeying, are intended to be ongoing actions continue remembering and continue obeying and lastly command number five jesus says repent you haven't been keeping what you heard and received you haven't been spiritually awake spiritually alert confess that to god seek his forgiveness and then know as john says in first john 1 9 that if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness and then turn away from your sin. Turn away from it and turn to live as he's called you to live instead. So what should you do if you're 
having a near-death experience. Five commands from Jesus. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you heard. Keep it. And repent. May be appropriate to fold all those commands into the wake-up call. Perhaps this is what waking up and staying awake looks like. In fact, I think maybe we can even simplify it further just to this. Get serious. Get serious. Get serious about sin. Get serious about holiness. Get serious about the kingdom. Get serious about Jesus. Right? If you're serious, you will strengthen the life you still have. You'll continuously remember what you were taught. You'll continuously strive to obey it with all your might. And you'll repent of your sin. Wake up. Get serious. It's very important to note that this call to seriousness is not merely a call to you know, pull up your bootstraps and, and try harder. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. You definitely should. Seriousness means trying hard. It means exerting yourself. It means going hard. If you're not trying hard, then you're simply not serious, right? We must try. But this call to get serious and to cultivate spiritual vitality, spiritual life, is not something we're supposed to do in our own strength. If we try that, we will fail. We don't have the power to do any of those things in and of ourselves. We need power beyond what our sinful nature can offer us. And we find that power in this passage. Let's look again at verse 1. Reconsider it together. Remember, every letter that Jesus writes to the seven churches, it begins with the description of who Jesus is. And these descriptions typically harken back to the vision that John had of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. And the features that Jesus chooses to highlight to each church are often applicable in a particular way to that church, to whatever church he's addressing. Revelation 3.1, you can look at the first verse again. Jesus said, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, the seven spirits of God is who? It is the Holy Spirit. And seven, since numbers in Revelation are often symbolic, may signify the Spirit's perfection or the Spirit's fullness. Why do you think Jesus would identify himself to Sardis as the one who has the Holy Spirit? Well, in that same verse, Jesus said that their problem is that they have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. Their problem is that they're nearly lifeless. They're having a near-death experience. What they need is revival. What they need is spiritual vitality. They need life. And Jesus says to his nearly lifeless church, I have the one who can give you life. As the Nicene Creed states, as the amended Nicene Creed states, Jesus has, quote, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. Jesus can provide them with the giver of life. What refreshment and encouragement that must have brought to the ears of an almost dead church. Yes, you can't revive yourself, but the giver of life, the Holy Spirit, can revive you. Through the Spirit, you can wake up. You can get serious. Your spiritual desert can become an oasis. How is that possible? It's not magic, but it is miraculous. The Holy Spirit can make you, He can make you alive through the Messiah's death and resurrection. He applies Jesus' life-giving work to you. Paul put it well in, uh, in Romans 6. He said in verse 2, How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. You are united with Jesus so that when Jesus died, you died. Your sinful heart 
your culturally accommodating heart, your idolatrous heart died. That person was buried with Jesus in the grave. And just as his death means your death, his resurrection means your resurrection. Jesus' life means your life. Paul continues on in verse 5 of the same chapter. He says, if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then Paul says in verse 11, you also must consider yourselves, what? Dead to sin and alive. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You're right, in your flesh, you have no power to get serious. You have no power to wake up, to change your heart. But Jesus does. And if you're in him, he has already put to death your sin. And he has already made you alive through his resurrection. If you're in him, you can be a person who remembers what you were taught and who actually keeps it, who actually does it. So how can you get in him? You say by repenting and believing. Yes, God unites to Christ all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus to save them. But how does he do that? How does he unite us to Jesus? John Calvin, the fifth, uh, famous 16th century reformer, said, quote, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. The bond is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites you to the Messiah. He unites you to Jesus so that Jesus' death becomes your death, so that Jesus' life becomes your life. He applies Jesus' finished work to you. The Holy Spirit, the giver of life, gives us life through the Son. He gives us life through the Son. And that same person, the Holy Spirit, dwells with His church today. He is with us now to make us more of the spiritually alive people that we already are in Jesus. Day by day, He makes the death of our old selves more and more of a present reality. Day by day, He makes our new alive selves more and more of a present reality. So do you want spiritual vitality? Do you want to get serious? The power to change is there. The power to spiritually live is there. It's not in yourself, but it is in the Holy Spirit. And so we should ask Him to make us alive. We should ask Him to do that. We should pray and sing, as we're going to after the sermon in just a moment, Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. He can breathe new life in you. He can and he does and he will for all who seek it. At the beginning of the letter, Jesus gives us the beautiful hope filled reminder that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God. He has the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Jesus has what we need. He has who we need. And with the Holy Spirit, Jesus can revive the almost dead church in Sardis. And he can revive you too. And so wake up. Get serious. Get serious by the Spirit's power. I mentioned this quote before. It's a good one to remember. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, The Christian should work as if all depended on him and pray as if it all depended on God. The Christian should work as if it all depended on him and pray as if it all depended on God. These commands to strengthen the life you still have, to continuously remember what you were taught, to keep it, to truly repent of your sin. These are all commands that you must strive to do as if it all depends on you. Strive with all your might. But do it knowing that it all depends on God. Pray 
as if it all depends on God. And trust in Jesus, trust in His Spirit to enable you to do these things and to give you life as if it all depends on them. Why? Because it does. It does all depend on them. We must get serious. We must wake up. But we must do so by the Spirit's power. Why should you? Why should you care? You see what we're supposed to do. You see how we're supposed to do it. But why would you? I'll give you one answer from this passage, and I think that it should be sufficient to motivate us to get serious. Jesus gives us a warning in verse 3. You can look at it with me. He says in verse 3, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Listen, this is not, this is not a game. This is not some kind of religious activity where we all, where we all get together and We'll talk about seriousness, but it's really just talk. Nothing's actually going to happen to you if you don't get serious. That's wrong. Something might happen to you. If you feel that way, then you need to let this warning from Jesus, the risen king who is alive and reigning today, you need to let this warning be that bucket of cold water that that takes your breath away, that stuns your, your sleepy soul back into its senses. If you will not wake up, Jesus says, if you will not get serious, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. How does a thief come? Unexpectedly. Right? You don't know. These don't tell you beforehand when they're going to rob your house. And Jesus saying you're not going to know when it's, when it's going to happen. That's how Jesus will come against you unexpectedly this is not the second coming sometimes the new testament uses thief imagery to describe jesus's return at the end of history but no this is this is something different this is a a special visitation from jesus a visitation to discipline or to punish those who refuse to wake up those who refused to get serious Jesus, the Son of Man, says, I will come against you. I'll come against you. That is absolutely terrifying. If that, if that doesn't motivate you to wake up today, I honestly don't know what will. To have Jesus personally say, I will come against you. You know, some of the commentators actually noted a, uh, an interesting parallel between the history of Sardis and the warning that Jesus gives to the church there. Remember, even though part of the city of Sardis was considered unattackable because of its location, Sardis twice before was taken by surprise, once by Cyrus and then again by Antiochus. And if the church in Sardis fails to be alert and to stay alert, if they fail to get serious spiritually, then unexpected disaster may come upon them too, just like it had to their city. Don't have Jesus come against you. Get serious. Get serious. In every letter that Jesus writes to the seven churches, there are promises that he gives to those who conquer. And those who conquer are those who what? Those who remain faithful to the end. Those who overcome this world. No matter what the cost, they remain faithful to Christ. They follow him. If you're not serious, if you refuse to heed Jesus' call, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved. There were people in the church at Sardis that were saved, that had some life, but they were nearly dead. The risk, if you do not heed Jesus' call, is that it will prove that you actually are spiritually dead. If you refuse to heed his call, if you hear it, if you understand it, and you willfully and unrepentantly continue to not be serious, to dirty your garments, to obey Christ, to go through the motions, but to do it with the wrong motives, if you do not repent, if you don't heed that warning, then it should be taken very seriously as a sign that maybe you don't have spiritual life at all. You should question how much assurance you can have 
as a true follower of Christ? Are you really one of those who will conquer, who will remain faithful to the end? If you don't have, if you don't heed this call, it should cause you to seriously examine whether or not these promises are for you. The promises are glorious. Listen to these. He gives several promises. He says in verse 4, he says, You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he says in verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed us in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess him, confess his name before my Father and before his angels. First, he says, those who have not soiled their garments either through sin or through cultural accommodation or maybe through idolatry, he says, those who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then verse 5 says that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. The white clothes, they could symbolize purity, which is probably most likely, or they could connote festivity or victory. Those are the clothes that you want to receive. You want to receive those white garments. But second, notice that Jesus says in verse 4 that they will walk with me. They'll walk with me. That's such, such a beautiful picture, walking with Jesus. Maybe it's touching on the, on the proximity that we get to enjoy with him, that sweet, intimate relationship with him, that relationship that Jesus has with those who are faithful. Or perhaps it's our, our identification with him. Jesus says, they will walk with me. Do you want to walk with Jesus? Do you want to walk with him? Then keep your clothes clean. But third, Jesus says in verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. In Revelation, that's the book. That's like a register of all the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The names of all who have eternal life are written in that book. And Jesus says that for those who conquer, for those who are faithful to him to the very end, he says their names aren't going anywhere. Eternal life is secure for you. Fourth, last but not least, Jesus says to those who conquer, verse 5, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I will confess his name before God and his angels. That should remind you of our Lord's, of our, uh, Lord's words in Matthew 10 when he said, quote, everyone who acknowledges me before men acknowledges the same Greek word that's translated confess in our passage in Revelation 3. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What a horrific thought to be denied by Jesus in the presence of God. To have Jesus' denial means death for you. But to have his acknowledgement to have him confess you before God and before his angels, to say that, that Mandy is mine, that George is mine, that Tina is mine, that they are my servants. How incredible to have Jesus affirm you. And Jesus' acknowledgement means eternal life. Do you want the white garments? Do you want to walk with Jesus? Do you want to have him Confess your name before the Father and before his angels. Do you want your name to remain in the book of life? Then conquer, Jesus says. And if you look inside and you lack spiritual life, then wake up this morning. Get serious. Get serious and stay serious by the power of the Spirit. Stay serious all the way into glory. Verse 6, Jesus says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to the churches, this is not just a message to the church for Sardis. All that glitters is not gold. The church in Sardis glittered of life, even though they were having a near-death experience. Their works fell short in God's eyes, perhaps from wrong motives, perhaps from soiled garments. 
They were nearly lifeless. Ask yourself, is that you today? Is that you? Jesus calls you to wake up, to get serious. He has the Spirit. He has the giver of life. We can get serious by the Spirit's power. Strive to get serious as if it all depended on you, but do so in complete dependence on Him for it all. The warning is stark. He says, if you don't wake up, the ruler of heaven and earth may come against you unexpectedly. But the promises for those who conquer are glorious beyond imagination. And so let's pray as we close that each of us would experience those promises in full, that each of us would remain faithful to him to the end. Let's pray. Wow, those promises are so incredible. To be clothed in white garments, to walk with you, to have our name secure in the book of life, to have Jesus confess our name before you. Father, we want those to be a reality for each and every person here. We pray, Father, that if there is anybody in this room right now that does not truly know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That you would give them your spirit. That you would cause them to repent of their sin and to trust in you and to be saved. And we pray, Father, that for all of us in here who are spiritually lifeless, who lack vitality, who look at our garments and see them soiled by sin, or who go through the motions, who obey you, but who do so for wrong reasons, we pray, Father, that you would cause us to wake up this morning, that we would get serious today, that we would heed your warning, that not one of us would experience that awful visitation of you before you come again, that visitation of judgment or of discipline. We pray, Father, that that would not be for us. Cause us to wake up. Cause us to get serious by your Spirit's power. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the life that you offer us through your death and resurrection. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who is the giver of life and can cause us to do all these things you've commanded us to do, can enable us to do all these things and to have life. Father, please cause us to strive with all of our mights to get serious and to depend completely on you, Jesus, and on your Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would revive us spiritually and that you would do the same for all of those here in this area, in this country, and around the world who fall into the same description that the church at Sardis did in Revelation 3. We pray, Father, you do this for your glory and out of of your love for us. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.